Hey everyone and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where today we are discussing why asking for help might be the most significant competitive advantage that you're not currently leveraging. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, the CEO of Results, where we believe poor execution is the number one reason why businesses fall below their expectations. And we have a proven framework that's helped thousands of leaders grow their companies faster over the last 20 years. And a big thank you to David Applin Group today for making this episode possible. David Applin Group is a complete recruiting and talent acquisition firm with locations across the country. And really comes right down to it, what David Applin does uh, better than anyone is they find talent that you can't find yourself. And we're living proof of that. They have found some exceptional talent for our own company that we never would have uh, uncovered and discovered if not for them. You can find them at applingroup.com. Give them a call for any of your hiring and recruiting needs. They're fantastic to work with. And we're seven months now into the pandemic and here is a growing theme and I'm sure a lot of you can relate. Employees are having a very difficult time with all of the uncertainty and the velocity of change. And it's not just the change, it's an idea that sounds good today is irrelevant in a week. And it's locked down and it's open up and it's the threat of lockdown. And what might happen now is we're going into a potential second wave and colder weather. There's just a lot to deal with. And it's really challenging for those employees to deal with that uncertainty and that velocity of change even more so if they don't have managers and leaders that are equipped to navigate that uncertainty themselves. And that's why we're hosting Beck's Exchange on October 29th with Sarah Noel Wilson, is we wanna actually give managers and leaders some specific tools and frameworks that they can start to use to navigate uncertainty better themselves and help their employees handle it better. And we have a short clip to show you what you can expect. Some of the tools that you'll walk away with are things that will help you. How do we coach our team members and our fellow colleagues through the resistance they might be facing? I'll share with you some very powerful frameworks for how do we problem solve those situations that are complex and uncertain. And finally, I'll share some tips that will set you up for success to experiment in a way that will lead to lasting impact. So I hope you will join us October 29th for this year's Bex Exchange. Sarah Noel Wilson, if you haven't seen her before, she was a highly rated speaker and guest from season one of Unleashed. I kind of describe her as Brené Brown before Brené Brown got famous. So if you ever wish that you could have saw the Beatles in a small pub in England before they came to America, this would be like Beck's Exchange with Sarah Noel Wilson. And if you sign up today for only $149, we're going to upgrade you to VIP level two as well. And you'll have a chance to check that out. Uh, in the feedback survey at the end of the show. Now on with today's episode. So we're very delighted to be joined by Dr. Wayne Baker, who is the Robert P. Tomei Professor of Business Administration and Faculty Director of the Center for Positive Organizations at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. His teaching and research focuses on social capital, social networks, generosity, positive organizational scholarship, and values. His latest book is All You Have to Do is Ask, How to Master the Important Skill for Success, which was published earlier this year. And it's a terrific book. We're giving away copies uh, at the end of the show today if you fill out the feedback form. He is also a co-founder and board member of Give and Take Inc., developers of the Givitas Collaborative Platform based on principles in his new book. 
He earned his PhD in sociology from Northwestern University, where he shared with us a couple of weeks ago, he was in the marching band and was a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard University. He resides with his wife, son, and Berman cat in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Welcome to the show, Wayne Baker. Well, thank you, Jeff. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're delighted that you could join us today, and, and thank you so much for, uh, for making time for us and for our listeners. Now, uh, asking for help is, uh, is an, a really interesting topic, and I, and I think that as I've reflected and prepared for this discussion today, I think it's, uh, it's a skill that we take for granted. And I thought where we could start off is what are we missing out on by not being really, really good at asking for help? Well, it's a really important question. We're missing out on a lot if we don't ask for what we need. So we need two kinds of resources to be successful, what we call our human capital and our social capital. Human capital is what we know, our skills, our experiences, our knowledge, our education, you know, the, the kinds of things that show up on your, on your resume. But we also need a strong, vibrant network of other people that we can draw resources from and also invest in those and help other people. So we yeah. need both of those. We need our human capital and we also need a really good network. Those together lead to success. Yeah, excellent. And, and we'll get into this, I think, uh, during the discussion, but you've also said that everything we need is literally within the grasp of our fingertips if we just learn how to ask. And I, I was thinking about some of the client interactions that we have had through the years. And we have actually had clients tell us that they delayed starting working with us because they didn't want to openly admit that they wanted and needed some help. And I think myself personally, there are times where I'm really comfortable asking for help. And I think those are areas where I tend to feel like I really don't know much about the topic. So I'll, I'll ask anybody for help there. But when it comes to areas that I feel like are my responsibility, perhaps in the workplace or things that I should know, that's when I start to become a lot more reluctant to ask for help. And in your book, you talk about eight fundamental reasons why people avoid asking for the help that they need. And uh, I thought we could maybe explore some of those, Wayne. So what are some of the sort of the core reasons why people avoid asking for help? Well, one of the main reasons is what I call over-reliance on self-reliance. So yeah. self-reliance is a powerful principle. It's a real strong source of motivation, uh, but we can over-rely on self-reliance. You think about it, you're trying to solve a problem. You could get a lot farther with that, come to a better solution faster by asking other people for input and advice. So yeah, we want to focus on the job that we have and the work we need to do, but we all should stop and say, okay, can I be a little bit better at this? Can I learn something from someone else that's going to help me be better at what I'm doing? So another common uh, barrier is we often think that, um, you know, we're going to be perceived to be incompetent or ignorant or that we can't do our jobs. It's sometimes called the perceived social costs of asking for help. And right. here the research is very important for updating that very common belief. So the research says, as long as you make a thoughtful request, people will think you are more competent, not less. So the research there can be very liberating and say, you know, I really don't have to worry about that as long as I come up with a thoughtful request. And we'll talk later about what that is. Yeah. Uh, and oh. I'll just mention one more of these eight here. And that is we often way underestimate other people's willingness and ability to help. In fact, there was an experiment that was done a number of years ago 
in Manhattan, so in New York City, where they asked people to go out into the streets and approach a stranger and ask to borrow their cell phone. They couldn't tell a sob story or plead or explain anything. All they could say was, can I borrow your cell phone to make a call? Now you can imagine that situation. Actually, a lot of people dropped out of the study when they realized what they had to do because the thought of approaching a stranger and asking for a phone was too much for them. But what they found out was really amazing. Now they figured they probably have to ask five people, 10 people more in order to get a phone. But the Richard says that the first person gives you the phone or the second person, complete strangers in New York. And that's one of many studies that illustrate a real strong tendency we have to underestimate other people's willingness and ability to help. And the fact is, is that most people want to help. The other, the other thing that you mentioned under the category of underestimating people's willingness to help is this notion of what, what you call weak ties. So I wondered if you could explore a little bit and explain what is, what would you call the weak tie? Why do we not ask them for help? And, and why is that, uh, why, why is that prob probably not a good idea? So weak ties are the bridges or the conduits to other parts of the world. I'll give you a really quick uh, illustration. First, by defining what a strong tie would be. Now, let's say that I had a twin brother yeah. and we did everything together. Um, we ended up becoming partners in the same business. We lived in a duplex. We dated twins. We married those twins. But what do you know? That's a very, very strong tie. But what do you know about that? You know that my twin brother's network and my network completely overlap. Right, so a weak yeah. tie is a way to break out of that. The weak ties are connections to other uh, social spheres, to other networks, other parts of the world, and that's the way that you expand the knowledge that you can draw upon. Got it. So leveraging a weak tie is is kind of a window into a world of experiences that we probably don't have a lot of ourselves. Would that be fair to say? Yes, that's true. Okay. Yeah, that's and true. They, how often do weak ties show up in the workplace? Uh, weak ties are very, very common. You know, we can only maintain so many strong ties. There's been some studies of that. Maybe it's 150, 175 strong ties that we yeah. can maintain. But we have thousands and thousands of interactions and encounters with other people. And any one of those would, be, would qualify as a, as a weak tie. So they're very common uh, in our lives, very common in business, very common in our community. And it could be as weak as, you know, going up to a stranger, asking to borrow a cell phone, you get that cell phone, you know, that's a, that's a weak connection, very weak connection, but yeah. it produced a result. In fact, you know, one other thing I could add, Jeff, is that most people find their jobs through weak connections, not through strong connections, because it's those weak ties that are bridges to where the jobs are that you didn't know about. Got it. And I can relate because most of this, most of this Unleashed series is a result of weak ties and Adam Grant is the reason and Jane Dutton are the reasons that you're on this show to begin with and I've never met Adam or Jane in my entire life. Uh, so there's, uh, there's, there's some proof positive right there. The other thing that you mentioned, Wayne, under underestimating people's willingness to, to help is this, this idea that when someone says no the first time, that shouldn't dissuade us from asking a second time, and that surprised me. So what does the research tell us about asking somebody a second time? Well, here again, the research can be very helpful for updating our beliefs, and it can be very liberating. So the, you know, when you think about it, if you ask someone for help or advice and they say no, 
most people say, I would never go back to that person again. I'm not going to get rejected twice. But the research shows that that person probably feels bad that they couldn't help you the first time. And they're actually more likely to help you the second time. It's uh, also important yeah. to realize is that you never really know why someone says no. You know, we might assume that they just don't want to help, but maybe it's bad timing or maybe something's going on in their lives or, um, you know, there's someone else they could recommend that would be better to help you. You know, so you never really know what a no is. Yeah. So, so that's so interesting. So the neuroscience of a no is uh, in some ways, maybe you want to get a no because the, the likelihood they say yes the second time uh, goes up dramatically. That's, uh, that's fascinating. The other, the second thing that you had mentioned, Wayne, uh, in your framework was that we, we tend to rely on ourselves too much. And, and I can certainly relate to this. And I think a lot of other business leaders can is that if you're going to do it the right way, you're going to do it my way rather than, you know, ask, ask somebody else to do it where I may have to coach and train or correct that kind of a thing, or there's, there's just not enough time to ask somebody else to do this. What's the, what's the risk that we face in the workplace if we're too reliant on ourselves? Well, I think the risk is that we will stall out in our careers. So you think about no matter how smart someone is, they're not as smart or as knowledgeable as the entire crowd. So think about it as crowdsourcing knowledge or crowdsourcing information or ideas or opportunities. Yeah. Oftentimes we can get to a better solution faster by inviting advice and input from other people. So when do we know, like, is there, is there a tipping point or in some kind of indication that we can look to to say, this is a time for me to get out of my own way and stop trying to do it myself and ask somebody else for, him assist, for, for assistance. Like, do you have any guidance on how to overcome that? There's a economic consulting firm that established, I think, a very useful rule in this regard. And so now they hire PhDs in economics, you know, really smart people, really well-educated, tend yeah. to work, uh, you know, by themselves on problems. And when you're hired at this firm, the principals say, okay, I don't want you to work on a particular problem for more than 20 minutes. And if you can't solve it, we want you to stop and we want you to call a little meeting with a couple of other economists and brainstorm about this. So that way they establish the norm and the expectation that in the workplace, you're supposed to ask for help. And all the cultures that I know that have very strong workplace cultures, IDEO, the creative design firm would be another example. They have a very strong culture of helping and the reason they do is that they have a very strong culture of asking. It's the asking that really drives helping. Yeah, that's the catalyst. That's helpful, Wayne. And then the social cost to asking, and, and this is another interesting one, and it's the third one that you reference in your framework and in your book. And you talk about uh, the relationship to asking for help and competency, and it's not what I thought it was. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so we often are very concerned that if we ask for help, that people will think we're incompetent. You know, they're not able to do our jobs. And so that will, you know, that reluctance or that barrier or obstacle will prevent people from asking. And again, I'd mentioned this before, and I think it's really important is that as long as you make a thoughtful request, people will think you are more competent, not less. Another way of thinking about it is that if you go to someone, you could say, look, I need some help. But if you go to that same person and say, hey, I could use your advice on something, the research is really clear that when you ask for advice, so if I go to you, Jeff, and say, you know, I need your advice on something, I'm acknowledging, you know, that you, that I value you, I value your advice, I value your knowledge and your network. 
right? And so you will actually think better of me because I was smart enough to come to you for advice. Yeah. Well, and that, and that was such a paradigm shift because I thought, all right, if I, if I'm going to start asking for a lot more help than I currently do, are people going to start to look around and wonder, well, what is Jeff doing if everybody else is doing, doing his job for him? And it sounds like there is a bit of a line that you can cross though. And, and you talk a little bit about there's two kinds of motivations for asking for help under the social cost umbrella. So there's an autonomous motivation and there's a dependent motivation. One is good, one is not so good. Can you talk about maybe what, what are both of those and then what are the impacts and implications for, for, for both of them? So autonomous help seeking means that you are say stuck on a problem and you want advice and input from other people in order to grow, learn, and develop. So you've learned how to do something and you don't have to go to anyone again on that particular problem. Dependent help seeking is quite different. Dependent help seeking is that I've got this problem, it's driving me crazy, I just wanna get it solved and off my desk and it's not about learning anything. Right? It's just getting it done. So I can give you a, a really good example. So uh, my son is a digital native. So he's grown up, he's almost 19 now. He's grown up with, you know, with the internet and phones and everything. And every now and then I'll get stuck with something on my iPhone. And I'll say to him, I said, hey, would you show me how to solve this problem? That's autonomous help seeking, right? Because I wanna learn from him how to solve this problem so I don't have to ask him again, right? Yeah. But what he'll do is that he'll take the phone and his fingers are blur and he just fixes it and hands the phone back to me. So the problem is solved, but I haven't learned how to solve that problem myself. Right. It, which is not necessarily your fault though, because you may have, you might be seeking autonomous help, but the way that the person you've asked is solving it is very much a dependent uh, strategy. So how do we, uh, so how do we, how, what do you do in that specific example to try to perhaps have your son give you more autonomous help in the future? Well, we're into a very complicated realm here of fathers and teenage sons. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and maybe a work, you know, and in the workplace, I mean, I think this happens all the time. And, and what you're making me wonder about is a couple of things, Wayne, is we can dump our problems onto other people just to get them off our plate for various reasons. And, 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 and that can have some pretty negative and serious consequences. So, I'm interested about how we sort of handle that. But then if we do run into situations similar to your son in the workplace where we ask for help in sort of the right way with autonomous motivations, but people just keep solving them for us in a dependent way, how do we start to maybe curb those relationships in a workplace? Might be a little easier or at least a little bit different than a father-son one. Yeah. So I, I can't tell you what what has worked with my son. And that is when I ask him, before I hand him the phone, I said, would you show me how to solve this problem and go through it step by step so I don't have to come back to you and you know and bug you again about it, right? So, and then when he agrees, then I give him the phone and he says, okay, do this, 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 and this, and I've learned how to solve that particular problem. Yeah, so in the workplace, if you go to, you know, to someone and say, hey, I need you to help solve this problem, just get back to me when it's done, you haven't learned anything, you haven't grown, you haven't developed. So in other ways, they say, look, I need your advice on this and can we sit down together kind of co-create a solution can i i really would like to learn from you so so i can grow so i can develop you know so that i can increase my knowledge and my skills so i think it's how you set it up that really matters asking for advice yeah. explaining why you're asking for it mm -hmm. and that you really want to not just solve the problem but you want to learn 
So we're very much responsible for whether or not people perceive us as competent by the way that we ask for help, not just asking. Yeah, yes, very, uh, very interesting. And, and I think that's a good segue, Wayne. And, and you, have some, you have some specific advice and, and a framework for the right way to start asking people properly. So what is the right way? What does the research tell us about asking for help? Well, remember that if you make a thoughtful request, people will think you are more competent, not less. Yeah. So a thoughtful request has four parts to it. The first is to pause and think about what's the goal? What's the objective? What am I trying to achieve? Right? And once you're clear about that, then you go to the second step, which is, all right, given that I'm trying to do that, what resource or resources could I use that would help me to, say, solve that problem? Yeah. Uh, you know, and to think very broadly about it, is it advice, information, ideas, opportunities, material, resources, money, whatever it might be, a referral, a connection. So once you're clear on the resource that you need, then you go to the third part, which is to formulate what I call a smart request. So a smart request is different than smart for a smart goal, which we're all familiar with. So we can go through this quickly, what the five parts are to a smart request. Yeah. So the S is for specific. The more specific your request, the easier it is to respond to it. And that might seem a little counterintuitive, uh, but it has to do with the way in which the human memory works. If I make a very specific request, it will trigger your memories of what you know and who you know. And those are the two ways you can help. Like I always encourage people, if somebody asks you for help and you can't solve the problem, you don't know the answer, don't stop there. Think about who in your network might be able to help and then make a connection. So that's the S. The M, and this is very different from the M for SMART goals, which is measurable, and measurability is nice, but here the M is meaningful. It's the why of the request. And this is often left out. We often just assume that people will know that it's important or meaningful because you're making the request, but no one really knows. You need to explain why are you making this request? Why is it important? Why is it meaningful? So the A is action. You're asking for something to be done. So just restating a goal is not a request. You know, a goal is a destination. A request is helps you move towards that goal. So you ask for something to be done, like make an introduction. That would be one example. The R is for what I call strategically realistic. So I encourage people to make big requests, um, stretch requests, little requests, as long as they're genuine and authentic. But whatever the request has got to be within the realm of, of possibility. And then the T is time, it's the deadline. And here, the more specific, the better. So when I run some of the activities that I describe in the book, you know, I say, look, if you're making this request, you get this, you've got the SMART criteria, if you really need an answer by tonight, then say so. And that will motivate people to respond. But if you have a very general time frame, like, oh, you know, sometime this year would be great, it's not gonna motivate people to respond. But you know, you tell people when you need it by, they're more likely to help you. Yeah. So that's the third part. So remember, it's the goal, what you're trying to achieve, your, you know, the, uh, the resource that you need, the smart request. And then the last part is, who are you going to ask? And yeah. here, there's a number of ways, and you need to think broadly. Um, sometimes it's the usual suspects. You know exactly who you need to ask. It's your coworker, it's your spouse, it's your boss, whatever. Uh, but sometimes, you know, it's um, what I call a two-step tie, which is, you know, I really don't know who to ask but I know someone who probably knows 
the person to ask. So I have a friend of mine who runs a Innovatrium where it's kind of a place where venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and inventors all come together. And he actually uses this in a very systematic way. And he's kept track of this. In fact, he told me that in one year, they used that two-step method 180 times to remarkable success. And he says, you know, we often don't know who the expert is, but we know who to ask to get to the expert, who would know who the expert is. Gotcha. I wish that I had this framework when I asked you to join the show. So somehow, uh, tripping all over myself, Wayne, I'm very lucky that you, uh, you agreed to my request. Uh, and so what I would encourage people to do is they're listening along, like we, and I'm seeing it pop up on the chat already. There's probably something that we're sitting on right now that we would like to ask for help with. And I would encourage you to figure out who that, what, what that request is, what is the thing that you need some help with and start applying Wayne's framework right away. So clarify the objective was step one. Resources required is step two. Apply the smart framework is number three. And then step number four, who are you going to ask for help? So that's a really useful framework, uh, Wayne. Now, how does the framework change depending on your level of famili familiarity with the person that you're asking? So uh, 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 a really common connection versus what we talked about earlier, a loose tie, as an example. How would mm -hmm. that change? Yeah, so you need to take into account what you know about the other person if you're making a, a request from a particular person. But sometimes you have an opportunity to broadcast your request by making a post in, let's say, an online group or an online community. And in that case, you're not targeting any particular person. You're posting to a group. Um, yeah. Me an example, for example, I'm a member of a, of, a, of a boating community on Facebook, and we all have the same kind of boats. Yeah. And so I live in Michigan. We're surrounded by the Great Lakes, so there's a lot of boating and sailing. So I occasionally run into a problem with my particular boat. It's not a new one. And, you know, I'll post that and somebody, I don't know who's got the answer, but out there in that boater community, there's someone who's run into the same problem and then they'll tell me how to fix it, right? So that would be, yeah. they don't have to figure out who, I just post to that group. But let's yeah. say you do need to ask a particular person. If you know the person well, then you know that person's preferred uh, mode of communication, whether they prefer um, uh, to, to meet in person, an email is good, or a text or a phone call. You know, I have some colleagues of mine who really prefer to get a phone call and others who would rather have it in an email so they can think about it for a little while first. So you need to be sensitive to that. Also need to be sensitive to, you know, what's going on in a person's life and what their scheduling constraints might be. So um, years ago, I worked in a management consulting firm. This was after graduate school and it was impossible to get any time with the, the head of the firm. And, but I often needed to ask him something. And so I'm figuring out, so how can I do this? Well, my office was positioned in just a way that I could see the elevator bank. And I could see when he would leave his office and go to get on the elevator and I would run out. I'd jump on the elevator with him. We'd ride down together and I had his undivided attention for that period of time. I'd even walk to him to his car. We'd get in the car together. He'd drive around and drop me off and I'd go back up in the elevator. Right, so there is one that was being sensitive to the fact. Okay, that that's the only way I can get in with this with this person, get in on their schedule. Um, and then when it's a weak tie or weak connection, I think if you're you want to be brief, but you want to use those smart criteria. You know, why are you asking? Why is this meaningful? Um, you know, specifically, what are you asking for? And to be okay if the person uh, declines. You know, and yeah. to not take that as a rejection, to take that as 
it's just information. Maybe you need to reframe your request or maybe it just wasn't a good time for that person. Yeah. Oh, that's a good way. And let's hope we're not getting any restraining orders with the, with the example you used of the elevator for sure. <laughs> the, and so to come back on something that you said earlier, if someone says no the first time, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be so reluctant not to ask a second time. How do we, how do we know, and it might be an art, but how do we know if we've gone to the well one too many times and it's time to stop asking them perhaps forever? Yeah, you know, that's possible. That, is, that has happened uh, to me. I remember when I was a young assistant professor, kind of a greenhorn, and I would run into like a, a statistical problem for my research I didn't know how to solve. And so I looked up on the faculty and I found like, oh, that there's the expert. I don't know the person, but I made an appointment and went to see the person and I described the problem, got a big sigh and he goes, well, you know, he says, I thought everyone learned that in graduate school, but here's how you solve that problem, right? So I was like totally deflated with the way that I got the answer, but I, you know, I lost energy to do anything with it. But I thought, you know, I'll go back to that person a second time. Maybe he was just having a bad day. Well, I went back a second time and learned that he wasn't having a bad day the first time. This is just the kind of person that he was. And so, you know, he was kind of disrespectful the second time too. Then I realized, okay, there's no sense in going back to this person again. And there are other people that I could find that I can talk to. Every now and then, it could be that if you don't know about a particular person, you can find someone that you have in common, that you have a stronger connection with and say, you know, you know it could be that, you know, I could say, you know, Jeff, I need to ask, you know, Bill for something. I don't really know Bill. What would be the best way to, to approach him? Does he like to have an introduction from someone else? Can I just send him an email out of the blue? So sometimes, you know, gathering a little bit of a, a social intelligence, I guess, is another way. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, but most people, this is one thing that we have found and the research is really clear on is that most people are generous. Yeah. Most people want to help if they can. Yeah. Yeah. So lean on the side of air on the side of ask, 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 because we, we vastly underestimate people that are willing to help us. That's great advice. And I, and I, and I love that it's, it's based in research, Wayne. So thank you for that. I was wondering if we could spend a bit of time now talking about a really powerful law that you have uncovered called the law of giving and receiving. And this, I think this is, a, this is a significant opportunity for people to start leveraging the power of this law that they may be unknowingly leveraging already in certain facets of their lives or not at all. Uh, but regardless, I think most of us can benefit from this at a way higher level than we currently are. What is the law of giving and receiving? So let's take the first part, the law of giving. Yeah. So giving generosity is a virtue. We should help people whenever we can. But you think about it, if everyone wants to give, if everyone wants to be generous, but you don't know what people need, nothing happens. So it turns out is that we also have to be willing to ask and, the, and to receive. So giving and receiving are two parts of one cycle. Yeah. So if we look at the, these are four types that we've learned about in, in our research. And there's an assessment that I have in the book that helps people figure out where they are. So yes. the most common category here is the overly generous giver. Those are people who are very willing to give, very willing to help, but don't ask for what they need. And as a result, they're less productive because they don't get the inflow of information and opportunities. Uh, the second most common category is the lone wolf. They don't ask, they don't give. 
Yeah. The best place to be as an individual, as a team, or an entire organization is the red quadrant, what I call the giver requesters, that you generously and freely help other people. You don't keep track of who helps you in return, and you make requests for what you need when you need something. Those people are very well regarded for their generosity, and they're the most productive because they're getting the inflow of resources that they need. So people who are giver requesters or teams and organizations that have a giver requester culture are living the law of giving and receiving. So the core of it is that there is no, you know, there's no giving without receiving and there's no receiving without giving and nothing happens unless you have the catalyst of the request. Right. Yeah. And I, I love this quadrant and for many, many reasons. Now, when I see the selfish takers, I think we, most of us can relate to having worked with some of them before. And it's the kind of personality that as soon as the boss is around, they're a completely different person. So they treat somebody that's above them differently than someone they may perceive to be at the same level or below them in the org chart as an example. Uh, but even selfish takers can be motivated to give sometimes, Wayne. What does the research tell us about that? Yes, selfish motivators can be motivated to give if giving is public, if people know whether or not people are helping. Yeah. So a lot of times, if you, know, if you approach somebody in their office or um, you know, in a phone call or email or something, it's one-to-one. And you know, unless you tell someone, you know, tell others that this person helped me or not, people don't know. But if you're asking and giving in a, in a public forum, let's say an online group of some sort, then you know whether people are just taking or they're taking and giving. Yeah. So uh, there's been a lot of experiments on this, a lot of studies that show that people who are really selfish will still give yeah. if it's in a public setting and it contributes to their reputation. They tend to not give if the decision to give is private. Can selfish takers change? Can a selfish taker become a giver requester? Oh, I think so. Um, I have faith in uh, human nature, and I mm -hmm. think that people can can learn. Uh, people can see that you know I could be actually could be a lot more successful in the long run if I stop being such a selfish taker and I'm more generous helping other people. If I am one of those giver yeah. requesters. Yeah. Can you build? Can you build a high performance culture if you have selfish takers inside of it? You can, as long as you uh, make giving public. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So I have an entire chapter in the book called Tools for Teams. It's all of the different practices, routines that a, a team or a group can use in order to create uh, giving and receiving. Mm -hmm. So um, let's see, one example would be the stand-up. So the standup is usually done in IT firms and software development has very widespread application to any kind of team. So we do a standup every morning in our Center for Positive Organizations with the entire staff. Although lately we've yep. been doing it on Zoom. Yeah. All the tools that I write about can be done virtually or remotely as well as face to face. But if you think about how that, that standup works, uh, if you were to do it on Zoom yep. uh, or face to face, everyone's in a big circle or on your Zoom screen. And every person has to address three points. They have to address, here's what I was working on yesterday, here's what I'm working on today, and here's the help that I need. Yeah. And then people will follow up with the help that they're gonna offer. So that is all done publicly. So it makes asking an expectation. In fact, if you don't ask, you're letting the group down. And then you also know in that setting whether people are responding, like saying, 
oh yeah, I can help you with that. I'll follow up later on. Yeah. So it's making it public. What about the overly generous giver? So that's the person that gives, 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 supersedes their own, uh, their, their own desires, needs, hopes, and goals. And I think some of the risks of that are, are obvious. It, it's burnout. It's, it's getting to be, you know, 55 years old and realizing your life has not been your own. There's a lot of downside to that. How do, if someone identifies, and I see some comments even in the chat, guilty of, of perhaps being overly generous on the giving side, uh, how does someone that recognizes they're overly generous uh, become more of a giver requester? So one is by realizing that the best place to be is the red quadrant and that overly generous givers is a very, very common category. It's the, it's the biggest category of these four. And to recognize that the research shows is that you will just be more productive if you ask. Yeah. So what I recommend to overly generous givers is two things. One is to put bounds on your giving. So you still wanna be generous, you still wanna help, but you don't wanna get burned out. You don't wanna squander your resources. You don't wanna overcommit yourself so that you're not able to you know, deliver on your prior commitment. So you need to put some bounds around your generosity. Mm -hmm. And you need to start practicing asking for what you need to start moving towards the top right, towards that giver requester category. Yeah. Now, sometimes you want to start with a few small steps, a few small wins, maybe asking for something, um, you know, relatively small or asking in a very safe environment like home or a community group, you know, but asking is a habit that we develop. Mm -hmm. um, it comes from, you know, recognizing that there's a framework. What do we need? What's the resource to accomplish that goal? What's a smart request? And asking that, the more you do that, then your experience will become the evidence that you need to convince you that this approach works. Right. Wayne, are we at risk in the pandemic? And I, and I should mention too, I'm going to get to some questions. We have some questions coming in the, uh, the Q&A line here. So thank you for that. And we will, we will get to some of them in a moment. Are we at risk in the pandemic of creating unintentional lone wolves as we're more separated from our employees in a remote world and, and, and even dealing in a lot of situations where there's been people that have been laid off and there's been downsizing. So more projects and tasks, tasks are going through fewer people. Is that a risk? Oh, absolutely. You know, Jeff, before the pandemic, loneliness was epidemic in the workplace. Loneliness was an epidemic in, in our lives. And now with this pandemic and people working at home, in fact, I've been working here at home since April. Yeah. You know, I'm teaching entirely remotely now, like many people are working entirely from home from a remote, uh, a remote location. And in that situation, we do feel we are more lonely. We're more disconnected. Yeah. That's why reaching out and asking even for a conversation is really important. And leaders play a very important role in this. And yeah. so there's, there's a company that I know that they actually, um, they came up with a program where, you know, they have a, a span of control. Each manager has 10 people that within eight days, each manager had to have a personal phone call with each of the 10 direct reports. And they gave them some suggestions about what to talk about. And it wasn't work. It was like, uh, like in September, talk about, schools reopening and or childcare or health or whatever it might be. And they said that when they each did this, they reached 800 people 
in eight days doing this. And people were less lonely. They were more connected to one another. They learned more about one another. What we have to do now during the pandemic is to be a lot more intentional about reaching out. In fact, some people say, you know, every now and then I'll have a, somebody who who's a business colleague will call me because he said, you know, I've found that, you know, emailing is a little bit too impersonal. So now I'm actually calling people a little bit more and you end up having more of a conversation than you would through an email exchange. Yeah. And I found that example in the book fascinating, Wayne. You, you talk about a large company that had all of these divisional silos and it, and it was really getting in the way of their ability to, to not only set strategy, but but to execute strategy collaboratively and a lot of finger pointing. And the thing that cured it was, uh, was a, uh, a requirement to have a 10 minute call every single week uh, with a different person of the other division for 30 days and they couldn't talk about work. That was the only thing they couldn't talk about was work. And I think that that's so counterintuitive to us as leaders because a lot of large businesses have silos. We recognize them. We want to break them down. We want to prevent them from happening in the first place. We don't often go to the personal side of relationships. We keep it very pragmatic. We keep it tactical. We keep it business focused. And it's actually not what the research shows us about culture and about relationships. Yeah, that's right. You know, if it's just about business, then it, the conversation is kind of at arm's length. Yeah. And so there's a, um, a criteria and I talk about in the book called the Ford criterion. Yeah. So if you're never sure, if you're not sure what to, what to talk about, just remember Ford F you could talk about your family, talk about your relatives or whatever. The O is occupation. That would be off the table here. You wouldn't talk about your occupation or work. R in Ford is recreation, your hobbies, your interests, your avocations. Um, and then the last one, the, the D would be your dreams, your aspirations. So yeah. you could always talk about something about family, something about your hobbies, your recreation, the sports that you do. Uh, you could always talk about your dreams and your aspirations. And when you share that with other people and they share that back with you, it creates that human connection, that human mm-hmm. moment. And that's step-by-step step, starts to be a cure for loneliness. Mm-hmm. The, uh, now in the most desired quadrant, Wayne, the, uh, the giver requester, and I have to mention Adam Grant because I have met more people in the last three or four years that have been helped by Adam. And I can only imagine how busy he is writing books and podcasts and lecturing and everything else that he does, speaking engagements. And yet he always seems to have uh, time to help people. And he does it in such a way where he's not doing the work necessarily, but he's become this conduit and this really valuable resource. And so I wonder how do people that are I, like are super human when it comes to being a giver requester, is there a magic into how they organize their weeks, their time, their schedules? Cause that's, I just keep figuring out what is the right balance? How do I get good at this? So I'm not asking too much or I'm not helping too little. Right. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really important question. So a couple of things, what people do and Adam does this, for example, is that you, you carve out time in your schedule during the week in which you're going to respond to the LinkedIn requests or to the emails or what have you. Um, Sometimes you have um, an admin who can help screen some of those for you. You do find sometimes that you're receiving very similar or almost identical requests. So another thing is that, you know, if you're getting the same requests for whatever it might be, you know, if you write up what your response is, then you can very quickly just copy and paste that and respond to that particular person. Yeah. 
Yeah. So on, on LinkedIn, for example, I try to always respond to every person, uh, even if it's just marketing, they're trying to market something to me. It seems like these days financial advisors are contacting me. <laughs> Digital marketers are a big one too. Yeah. And you know, the thing, the thing is that, you know, I realize there, you know, everyone's, you know, trying to make a living. So I get it. So I always thank people for contacting me, say that I don't have a need right now, but I have your information and we're connected uh, for in the future. I yeah. really try not to get in the situation of never responding to anyone. If I'm overwhelmed, that might happen. But that idea of carving out, okay, so I'm going to, all right, so uh, Thursdays, that's the day in which I'm going to respond to whatever the requests are, and I'm not going to respond on any yeah. other day. That's yeah. a way of compartmentalizing. Yeah. No, that's, that's good advice, Wayne. Thank you. Uh, I want to go to one of the questions uh, right now from an attendee today, and, and it's, it's about gender differences and asking for help. So the question is, are women more prone to being overly generous givers? Very important question. So the research on this is extremely mixed. So some studies show that there are gender differences. Some show that there are not gender differences. And I can speak to you with the research that I've done. So in the book, I have a very short assessment. It's the asking giving assessment. How often do you give under for a variety of different things and how often do you ask? And there's also a free version of that on the website for the book. Um, so the nice thing is that you don't have to buy the book to take the assessment. You can go to the website and you also get a really nice a report that will compare your results with the population of people who have taken the assessment. So what we have found that we've got, we've had many, many thousands of people take that assessment. And this is really interesting. There are no gender differences in propensity to help and no gender differences in propensity to ask. That is shocking, really shocking. I, I think stereotypically we, uh, I know I uh, would think that males were more, more the lone wolves and, and, uh, and females were more the, the generous givers. So that's really interesting to, uh, to, to know that. So it's very much environment specific, uh, if I'm recalling your book uh, correctly. What about just from a culture standpoint, Wayne, why as business leaders, why should we care about creating a culture where giving and receiving is really the, the, the expected norms? So you can imagine that in any organization, there are a lot of resources sitting out there, a lot of answers, but the only way that you can mobilize them is by creating a culture in which people feel empowered that they can ask for whatever they need and other people will be generous and respond to it. That's what gets the resources moving. That starts the circulation of yeah. the resources. So in a large organization that is, has multiple silos, very often the situation that there's a problem in one silo that has been solved someplace else. But unless that person has an opportunity to ask across those silos and there's a culture set that it's okay to ask, in fact, it's expected to ask. Yeah as well as to respond, you know, the answer just sits out there. And so you can be much more efficient. Mm -hmm. You can make much better use of the resources that you have. You could discover new resources by having a culture in which people ask and give. Wow. And when you talk about that, I cannot think of a better example of how to start capitalizing on some of the untapped potential. I have to believe that almost everybody listening to this has got untapped potential in their business and, and that could be really helpful. So I know that that kind of a culture doesn't, it doesn't um, uh, create itself. What are some tools that we can start using in our companies to be more intentional about creating that type of environment, Wayne? 
So uh, years ago, I used to think that if I motivated people, then you know, they would come up with a solution. And what I found is that it's a lot more effective if I could go out and do the research and collect all the tools, some I've developed, many other people have developed, and put them all into the book. So it's, the book is a, is a toolbox. Yep. It's all the ways in which you as an individual, you as a team leader or team member, or as an entire organization, all the tools that you can use. And so we mentioned, we can, there's a lot of them, we can mention just a couple. One is to stand up. Very simple, highly effective, as long as you keep doing it. And so I recommend to leaders that if you're gonna try one of the tools, like the stand up, to get a commitment, you're gonna do it for 45 days, right? And the people say, okay, I will do it for 45 days. So that gets over the initial hesitance you know, hesitancy about actually doing it. And then people's learn that this is really helpful and they want to keep doing it. Uh, another tool is the reciprocity ring um, that uh, Cheryl Baker and I created now over 21 years ago. So this is a structured activity in which people, uh, everyone makes a request using the SMART criteria um, and they spend most of the time helping other people. So at this point, the reciprocity ring has been done in 12 different languages. Uh, over 20 different countries around the world, uh, a couple of hundred thousand of people have done it. And it seems like it's universal that if you give people a structure to follow, because uh, this is a recipe of how you actually have to do it, amazing things can happen. I mean, people's lives have actually been, have been changed. And I've, wrote, I've written about some of those stories in the book. Some people's lives have been, have been saved as a result of this. But these days, no one is doing the reciprocity ring because it's a face-to-face -face activity. So we've created the virtual version of it, uh, which is done remotely, but it's synchronous. So everyone has to be on at the same time, but there's now a, a remote way of doing it. And what we're learning is that it's just as effective as the face-to-face -face, uh, reciprocity ring. Got it. So how many people should be in a reciprocity ring? So when it's face-to-face, -face, we've learned through tri trial and error that about 20 to 24 would be the max. Uh, when we've done it with very large groups, we divided it up. In fact, the largest group we ever did was 900 people at the same time. So we had lots and lots of groups and we had trained lots of facilitators to run all these different activities. Yeah. When it's done a, in a virtual environment, um, in, the, in the virtual reciprocity ring, you can have a larger group, maybe up to 40 or so. When it gets, you know, it gets beyond that, it just takes too long to actually do. Yeah. Then we advise people to use the Givitas tool that we created. So for years, when we would run the reciprocity ring, people would say, well, this was great. I got the answer that I wanted. I solved that problem. You know, I made that connection I really needed. But, you know, now we're all going to go back to our different offices and our different locations. And how can we continue this progress? You know, is there, is there an app for that? And we resisted for years trying to create any kind of application because I didn't think technology was up to, up to the task. Yeah. Um, but I've changed my mind over the last couple of years because technology is really, really advanced. And so we teamed up with Adam Grant and other people to create Givitas. So Givitas uh, comes from two words, giving and Civitas, which is Latin for community. So you get Givitas. Yeah. And what it is, is that if you can imagine the reciprocity ring principles, the principles I write about in the book, you know, asking, making smart requests, being generous, helping other people. But now you've got a community of a thousand people, 2000 people, 5,000 people that are in a Givitas group. And you, when you post a request there, that gets sent out to a whole bunch of people and those people can decide whether they want to respond or not. 
So Jeff, when I was writing this book, I occasionally needed like a new example or I needed a tool to illustrate a particular principle. Yeah. So I used a number of our Givitas groups. We had some open access ones uh, that are free to join. And I went into some of those and I said, look, I'm writing this book and I could use an example of this. And for example, I met someone who was the uh, senior HR manager for one of the Aboriginal corporations in Alaska. Right. So I don't often go to Alaska. I guess it's closer to all of you, right, uh, to get there. And uh, but it's, uh, you know, it was amazing that I met this person. This person is now in my book. Right. Yep. An example. And that's just one of many, many examples. So uh, I found the tools personally to be very effective. Yeah. And I know we're going to give away. You've generously um, made eight uh, subscriptions to the technology platform available to people that fill out the feedback form today. So thank you for that, Wayne. In the, in the limited time that we have left, there's a couple of other things I wanted to chat with you about quick that, that really uh, sort of perplexed me. And the first one was this, uh, the commentary that you had on dormant ties. And I've always felt like, well, boy, if I haven't talked to that person for a couple of years. If I reach out and ask them for help, they're just going to think I'm, I'm ungrateful and I only call them when I want something. But you say that that's actually irrational thinking. So tell me your, your thoughts and then what the research says on dormant yeah. ties. Yeah, so a dormant tie or a dormant connection is someone with whom you've had a relationship in the past, but your lives have gone in different directions and you've fallen out of touch. And most people feel exactly the way that you described, like, oh boy, I don't, they, they would not be very receptive. They think I just want something and I'm connecting with them because I want something now. But here the research can be very helpful. There's been a lot of research on dormant ties. And the research says that most of our dormant connections are delighted to be reconnected. They're happy that you reactivated the tie. They welcome the, 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 the connection. So that's one. Most people, most of your dormant connections will be very happy to hear from you. Yeah. And the second is that they're even more valuable sources of help. Because your lives have gone in different directions, they now know things and know people that you don't know. So they're kind of like the gateway into a whole nother part of the world and have different resources uh, that you don't otherwise have access to. Got it. Got it. And we have some really great questions that are still coming in the chat line. So my promise, because we're running short on time, is we will get those questions answered and we'll get them over. Uh, we'll get them over to Wayne uh, one way or another. Um, but maybe the, the final question I had for you, Wayne, was around project setting. And in your book, you talk about what uh, really successful companies do for projects before they start. And if we don't do projects like what you call stage setting, projects uh, might be highly likely to fail. Yeah, so when we have a new project and we pull a team together, I mean, we're, we really want to get going. We want to start doing the work. And what uh, we have found is that it's really important at the very beginning to pause and do some stage setting, which is to talk about what kind of culture do we want to have as a team? What kind of tools or practices are we going to use to encourage people to ask for what they need and to give help to one another? You know, to really talk about the law of giving and receiving and the idea we want a team of giver requesters and how are we going to make that happen? Mm -hmm. We'd also want to take into account pe people's personal preferences and constraints. You know, maybe yeah. somebody has childcare and, you know, and they have to be home by 6 p.m., you know, well, that's important to know that so you don't schedule a meeting that's going to run over 6 p.m. So it's learning about one another, what people's preferences and constraints are. Very importantly, describing the culture that you want and the practices you're going to start using. 
If you do that, and it doesn't take much time to do that, if you set that stage before you jump into the work, the team will be much more successful. Gotcha. And, and you talk a lot about psychological safety, and it goes a long way to creating a team environment where there is that feeling of safety. Dr. Wayne Baker, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. There are, uh, there are literally handfuls of things that you can do right away for your personal life and for your business uh, to start making improvements right away. And if you want to stay connected with Wayne, you can find him on his website at uh, allyouhavetodoisask.com. Uh, all you have to do is ask.com. You can email him. He's generous to provide his email address. Be careful what you uh, ask for, Wayne. Wayne B <laughs> at umich.edu. Uh, and you can find him at LinkedIn, of course, Wayne Baker. And his personal website is waynebaker.org. If you have questions for us, comments about the show, please email us at info at unleashedresults.com. And you'll find this uh, uh, broadcast, rebroadcast, and the link in our follow up blog at unleashedresults.com.blog. And in terms of uh, looking ahead after the show, if you fill out the feedback form, we are giving away copies of Wayne's incredible book. So fill out the feedback form and you will also have a chance to win one of eight uh, subscriptions to his technology platform, which he mentioned today. And then looking ahead to October 29th. So we're off next week. We're not back on Unleash for three more weeks. But two weeks from today, we welcome Sarah Noel Wilson for Beck's Exchange, really helping leaders and managers become more adaptable so not only they, they, they can lead better in current environment, but they can lead their teams through all of the uncertainty and turbulence that's going on right now. And, and a, a lot of themes are relevant for uh, dealing with uh, uncertainty uh, that we talked about today with Dr. Wayne Baker. And then we only have three episodes left in season two. Hard to believe. Where does the time go? And so we're back with you November 5th with Thomas Waddell Waddellsburg, and he has got an, an incredible book on solving the right problem. You would be amazed how often we just get down to work. Kind of what Wayne was mentioning, actually, when we have a project or a problem, we just get busy solving it, but we don't take a step back and make sure we're solving the right one. And there are a lot of costs and a lot of implications for us if we're not solving the right problem. So I hope you can join us for that. Dr. Wayne Baker, thank you. Get out there, everybody, and start asking. We'll make the world a better place. Have a great okay. day. Thank you, Jeff. My pleasure.